Welcome to another episode of 35 West. My name is Margarita Seminario. I am the Deputy Director of the Americas Program at CSIS. How professional the Mexican but government. are we ready? Oh, I don't reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Welcome to another episode of 35 West. This week, we're joined by Betilde Muñoz Bogosian. Matilde is the director of the Department of Social Inclusion at the Organization of American States, the OAS. She leads their work on the inclusion of populations in vulnerable situations, including migrants and refugees. Matilde has more than 15 years of experience leading missions, programs, and projects focused on equity and social inclusion, democracy, and human development. She previously served as director for the OAS Department of Electoral Cooperation and Observation. Also, she holds a PhD in political science from Florida International University. Thank you so much for joining us today, Betilde. Thank you, dear Maggie, for this introduction and the invitation to talk to you today. Betilde, how did you come to be involved in this work? Let's start there. Well, I came involved in this work as a result of a combination of personal conviction and institutional mandate. Since I was very young, back in my native country of Venezuela, I was always appalled to see injustice. And in a country such as my native one, where injustice, inequality, and human rights violations are a day-to-day thing, it was very hard not to find purpose in trying to help other people. So in many ways, helping others, giving voice to those who don't have the chance to get their voices heard, is a personal commitment. Institutionally, with the arrival of Secretary General Luis Almagro to the Organization of American States, a new technical area was created, the Secretariat for Access to Rights and Equity, and this department that I lead, the Department of Social Inclusion. And Almagro gave us the specific mandate to work on what is one of the greatest challenges we have in the region. The fact that the Americas continues to be the most unequal region in the world. And and this, I want to say, not only understood in terms of income inequality, but also from a multidimensional perspective, in the sense that there are particular characteristics people have that unfortunately can cause discrimination and can limit people's access to their rights. So within the Secretariat, I direct the work of the Department of Social Inclusion, organized to respond to the challenges that I just described in two broad strategic areas, working on social development projects on one hand, and also developing advocacy and cooperation initiatives for the inclusion of groups in vulnerable situations. That's fantastic. And what historically have been the region's biggest challenges when it comes to social inclusion? Could you provide us some country-specific examples? Well, I would say that there are two historical social inclusion challenges for most countries of the region. The first one is, of course, poverty. And and it's important to know that we have to talk about pre- and post-COVID numbers and or pre- and post-COVID percentages. And if we refer to the context at, in the region pre-COVID, we knew that for 2019, we had around 30.8% of people living in poverty. I'm talking about 191 million people. And 72 million people, or around 11.5%, living in extreme poverty. And these poverty indicators added to the complex economic and social landscape that put the Americas, as I said earlier, as the most unequal region in the world, with the caveat, too, that people living in rural areas, children and adolescents, women, indigenous peoples, Afro-descendant people, are predominantly 
represented in the numbers of people living in poverty and extreme poverty. And it's, of course, these groups that continue to be underrepresented in positions of political representation, and they also present significant gaps in the exercise of fundamental economic, social, cultural rights, such as education, social security, health, and work. To give you an example, if health is a basic human right and a key one for people, especially confronting a pandemic, let me tell you, for instance, that before the pandemic, only 35% of workers were affiliated to a health system in our region. Informal economic activities reach approximately 53% in most countries. I mean, there's, of course, variations. Countries as Peru or Ecuador have a high level of informal economy, but overall, we predominantly have an informal economy in our region. Unemployment rates were 10% or so. And if I go to specific examples, of course, <laughs> at the OES, we tend to focus on the more regional outlook, the broader lessons and, and data that can help inform our support to the member states. But for instance, countries like Venezuela are of great concern, uh, with around 96% of Venezuelans living in poverty and 70% of Venezuelans living in extreme poverty, according to the 2020 National Survey of Living Conditions, the NCOVI survey that is done by one of the major universities in the countries. Central American countries also face important levels of poverty. And we could mention the specific challenges that Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador face in reducing the numbers of poor people. For instance, 60% of Hondurans and Guatemalans live below the poverty line, compared, as I said earlier, to around 30% of all Latin Americans. And, and this actually, by the way, is a key driver of migration for these countries. And the second historical challenge has been food insecurity, which is, of course, directly linked to poverty levels, but also to other issues such as failed efforts in overcoming malnutrition, ensuring effective food production and distribution chains, even climatic events. We recently had a wave of hurricanes in, in Central America and, and also Caribbean nations that unfortunately continue pushing progress back in terms of ensuring people's access to food. And there's been some positive progress in terms of reducing acute and chronic malnutrition in children, but definitely this is a huge challenge for the region. And I said two, but maybe I would add a third one that if reversed, I think can also have a positive impact on poverty and food insecurity. And, and I'm referring to gender disparities in all realms, not only in, in terms of the politics or uh, political representation, but also in terms of women, economic and social empowerment that in the end, I also believe has an impact on their possibilities of entering into politics or having a public role. And let me give you three indicators that, that also help illustrate this. We know that women in Latin America earn, on average, 71% of what men earn for the same job performed. And that they also represent more than 50% of people working in the informal sector. Again, variations per country, but we know that women are hugely represented in the informal workers, as well as migrants, by the way. And then also women tend to dedicate between 15 to 30% more time for the care of the private, you know, caring for the family, the elderly, the children, the person with a disability. And all this combined, of course, puts women in a disadvantaged position economically and socially. But also, I argue this is sort of economic opportunity cost in the sense that how can women involve themselves in solving the problems of their communities or getting involved in a public agenda when they have to be taking care for the most basic, which is earning an income, providing for their families and investing their time in the care of the private.
What about how the COVID-19 pandemic differs across populations like, in addition to women, Afro-Latinos, Indigenous peoples, and persons with disability? The pandemic has affected all of us, but it has definitely affected certain groups in a more disproportionate way, precisely to help the countries of the region and the member states of the OAS respond to this pandemic by prioritizing attention to the needs of marginalized populations, such as the one that you're mentioning, we launched back in April the Practical Guide of Inclusive Responses to COVID-19 with a Rights Perspective in the Americas. And what we try to do is to precisely shed light on the fact that in a hemisphere already marked by inequality, the effects of this pandemic on the right to health, but really on all human rights, will have or would have a greater and differentiated impact on people in vulnerable situations. In the guide, we go group by group. We map out specific challenges of the pandemic on women, the elderly, LGBTI people, people with disabilities, those deprived of liberty, children and adolescents uh, and the like. We show the challenges each face and, and just for instance, or we referred in the guide to women and their increased exposure to gender violence as a result of having to spend more time with their aggressor due to, you know, these social distancing measures. The numbers in the region have gone up. Of course, countries like Argentina and Chile have shown very interesting examples of how to ensure that women can get support when they face gender violence. But we also know the challenges faced by children and adolescents with disabilities, for instance, are actually all children, but especially those who have been affected by the suspension of school activity including children from low-income or poor households who only receive their breakfast and probably their lunch and snacks in the school, or Afro-descendant and indigenous peoples who are overrepresented among the poor, as we said earlier, but also tend to live predominantly in rural areas and cannot have access to health services on equal terms as the rest of the population. So it's very important to show these differences so that we can develop responses that are effective, that are more appropriate, and we at least proposing the guy that any response, any public policy response must have at the center three key principles, a rights-based approach, which is no more than just looking at our commitments in terms of human rights standards and ensuring that whatever public policy we define, design, or and implement is responding to those commitments. The second one is the principle of equality and not discrimination, which is ensuring that everyone can have access to their rights, to health, to the plethora of, of human rights on equal terms of the, as the rest of the population, and a very important concept that we based our work on, which is the concept of intersectionality, which is just understanding that these identities can cross and do coexist in people on very particular moments in time. Could you please repeat for our listeners the exact name of the guide and also where they could find it online? The guide is called Practical Guide of Inclusive Responses to COVID-19 with a Rights-Based Perspective in the Americas. And it can be found at our website. I would like to now focus a little bit on the vulnerabilities of migrant populations. We really could not discuss social inclusion in the Americas without talking about migrants. The region is home to millions of people who have fled their country because of poverty, political repression, violence and, and even natural disasters. While much emphasis is placed on the Venezuelan refugee crisis, hundreds of thousands of people flee the Northern Triangle countries of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras every single year. Recently, 
there has also been an uptick in migration from Nicaragua as people flee political violence and economic insecurity. I have two questions for you. One is, what are the economic and social vulnerabilities that migrants in the region face, and especially those who are part of traditionally marginalized populations? And also, what is your vision for how the OAS can cooperate with other organizations in the region to help member states address these vulnerabilities? On the issue of migration, let me just start by saying that migration has been a constant in the Americas. This is, is not new. And we know also that there is important or high levels of intra-regional migration. Also that, you know, although this intra-regional migration has increased, we have a report at the OES, the CICREMI report, which maps or, or documents international migration in the Americas. We know that in the last 15 years, the total number of immigrants residing in countries of Latin America and the Caribbean has increased by 45%. So no one denies that there is, has been an increase in intra-regional migration, but migrants in the countries of our region do not surpass three or 4% of the population following also global trends. So the media and some political leaders tend to sometimes, I believe, take that out of proportion, but migrants and refugees really represent a small percentage of the population, one that can potentially contribute greatly to overall growth and development in the country that is receiving them. The second issue I also would want to bring to your attention is that there is a wide variety of human mobility patterns happening in the region. You mentioned that our attention tends to be on the Venezuelan migration crisis, which is, you know, that is indeed the greatest forced displacement crisis the region has ever had, the second one only to Syria in, in the world. But we, as you say, have many, many human mobility patterns happening. We are talking about the displacement of people due to the armed conflict in Colombia. This is internally displaced people. We have the historical migration of Haitians and Cubans. We have the migration of Peruvians and Bolivians, mainly to Argentina and Chile. You know, we don't talk about this, but we have the arrival of extra continental migrants. I'm talking people from countries in Africa, Asia, the Middle East, who are continually coming to Latin American countries with the U.S. as their final destination. And beyond, beyond these patterns that we know and we document are happening in our region, there's also the situation of around 7 million people who are forcibly displaced in the Americas or ha are requesting asylum or in these very vulnerable positions. And, and I'm talking people mainly from Central American countries in top two countries there in terms of the forcibly displaced are El Salvador and Guatemala. And of course, Venezuela eh, is part of that list. And the numbers of those requests have increased dramatically. We know that around 10% of the 70 million displaced people in the world are from our region. Again, I mean, uh, this is sort of patterns of, of human mobility that are happening, generally happening in our region. But as you say, in, from the standpoint of the OAS, we are closely taking a look over, you know, the three key migratory systems. I'm referring to the almost 1 million nationals of El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras. The around 105,000 Nicaraguans who have left the country uh, since April of 2018 as a result of political repression and, and very dire political and social conditions in Nicaragua, which we know are eight, around 80% are settling in Costa Rica, you know, putting important pressures in that country in terms of 
their uh, receipt and, and integration, and of course the 5.2 million Venezuelans who have left in, in recent times. Now, as to your question, what is the situation of these displaced populations, of these migrant populations? We know that before the start of the pandemic, many of these migrants and refugees were in an irregular situation without documentation. And I always say that, you know, the, having a, a, an ID, having an identity, civil identity, being in a regular situation is the door to have access to all other rights, you know, medical and health services, water, sanitation, housing, education. And the arrival of COVID-19, uh, unfortunately, has represented an additional challenge for these populations and the countries receiving them that are having a hard time in terms of hosting them, integrating them and providing for their basic needs. And the pandemic, in a way, has exacerbated this dire situation of these migrants. And, and I'm talking, for example, that the majority cannot necessarily meet their basic needs, that the majority do not have a home to stay. We, we tend to have the situation of migrants, many, many migrants sharing a, a small home. Imagine implementing social distancing measures when, when you live in this particular situation. We know that the majority, due to their irregular situation, tend to kind of depend on informal economic activities that have stopped because various countries in their sovereign right have decided to reduce these economic activities. And that this has had an impact on their possibility of having a daily income to provide for their families. And then we have situations of some migrants that are returning voluntarily or involuntarily to their countries of origin, adding new challenges in terms of their situation. How can we help at the OAS, how we can cooperate with the member states that are receiving countries to these migrant populations? I always say that we have to keep doing what we do best, which is ensuring that countries engage in constructive political dialogue so that they can set regional consensus, regional priorities, and articulate a way to connect and cooperate based on these big consensus that they establish. And uh, secondly, of course, promoting regional cooperation to help countries either bilaterally, you know, one-on-one -on -one OAS and the countries, as well as groups or sub-regional groups to address the challenges that they have been prioritizing. And on the issue of migration and forced displacement, I can give you two examples. At the OAS, we are technical secretariat to the Committee on Migratory Affairs that kind of brings together delegates and ambassadors of member states to agree on key issues regarding a regional migratory agenda. One that is actually evolving into a very interesting regional cooperation exercise is what's called the MIRPS, M-I-R-P-S, which is the regional application of the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework that is in the Global Compact on Refugees that articulate six countries of Central America plus Mexico in regional cooperation efforts that allows them to quantify the needed response to give protection to displaced populations, connect with key actors such as civil society, the private sector, and other uh, interesting influencers, to use a term, in the ecosystem that, that is connected to the refugee agenda in Central America, in order to prove the responses that these countries are giving to forced displacement challenges in Central America. And we also do concrete 
cooperation projects. And, and I would mention maybe one that we're implementing in Costa Rica precisely to address the arrival of Nicaraguans in the last year or so. And what we are trying to do uh, with support from the Spanish Cooperation Agency, the South Korean government, we are trying to identify what are the gaps in the migratory policies that Costa Rica has been implementing, as well as ensuring that the responses do not only address the particular humanitarian or socioeconomic integration needs of Nicaraguans arriving to the country, but that also set the ground for a more human rights-based and effective migration response by Costa Rica to future flows. And, and I must mention in the case of Costa Rica, of course, Nicaraguans uh, represents an important migratory group, but we also know that there is a, a new important arrivals. And I think now Salvadorians top the list in terms of those requesting asylum with Nicaraguans. And again, Venezuelans are also showing up in that list for the case of Costa Rica. So these, you know, some examples of how we can improve both political dialogue and technical cooperation to member states on migration issues. Matilde, it was a true pleasure getting to know you better and also the work of the OAS on the inclusion of vulnerable populations. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you so much, Maggie, for this invitation. I'm very glad to have the opportunity to share about our work at the OAS. For you, thank you again for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.